This is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. And if you support at any amount, you can hear my patron-only lectures, including the second half of my discussion of the myth of Robin Hood, in which I examine the possible historical and mythological roots of the Robin Hood legend. So now I'm going to switch to a very different topic, something much more recent, something more politically salient, which is outside of the norm for me. I generally don't talk about recent history. It's not my field. I also don't tend to get into current political issues, which can be obviously emotional, controversial. And if I do mention them, I try to put them in a very broad historical perspective. So I want to talk now about the Powell Memo and its role in the creation of a conservative movement and the impact that that has had. Because for one thing, it's the 50th anniversary of the Powell Memo, which is a fairly little-known document to the public, but one which can be seen as really a watershed in modern politics. And it came to mind especially because of recent controversy, consternation about the direction of the Supreme Court and the possible future of the Roe versus Wade ruling and other court precedents. So when these issues came up and a couple people asked me about them, I wanted to sort of step back and explain how, from my point of view, this current situation is the outgrowth of a very long process of the creation and deployment of a modern conservative movement. And the Powell Memo provides a touchstone for how that happened. So I'm going to talk about this broader movement and the role that this particular document might have played and the window that it allows into important historical shifts. So our current situation, as I said, can be seen as the result of a long process of planning and organization by conservatives in America, which has had mixed results. It's not a simple story of conservative triumph or conservative domination. But it is the result of a long movement of mobilization with a particular focus on the court system and especially on, you could say, the holy grail of the Supreme Court. And this document I'm talking about, the Powell Memo, was prepared by a lawyer named Lewis Powell Jr., who soon after became a Supreme Court justice himself. So there's clearly a connection between the arguments he put forward and the importance of the Supreme Court. The immediate audience that Powell wrote this document for was the Chamber of Commerce, but it was also aimed more widely at the business community as a whole, and it really was a watershed in the formation of a collective consciousness of the business community or the business class, and it can be seen really as a call to arms for business executives to enter the political fray in a way that they hadn't done, at least in many decades, had not done. And it was very influential in the formation of a new conservative movement, such as had not been seen before, and most importantly, in mobilizing funds to fuel this conservative movement. And in this way, it initiated a massive new influx of money into politics, into the political system and political process, 
which didn't just affect conservatives or Republicans, but really has affected all parties across the spectrum. The role of money spending to influence politics, to influence elections, legislation, referendum campaigns, this was not totally new. It goes back at least to the 1890s and the rise of Mark Hanna and the campaigns that he ran for William McKinley. But nonetheless, this point when the Powell memo came up in the early 70s is still very significant and made a real discernible change in the political landscape. For my part, I can remember seeing Senator Ted Kennedy when he was still alive going on The Daily Show, and Jon Stewart asked him, since you have been in the Senate for all these decades, what has been the biggest, most important change? And Kennedy simply rubbed his fingertips together and said, money. And probably a lot of political actors would agree with his assessment that between the 1960s and the 21st century, this influx of money really reshaped the whole mood and machinery of Washington and also of state capitals too. And also more broadly, this shift that I'm going to talk about in which the Powell memo was such a crucial turning point, it was part of a broader kind of realignment and reconfiguration of politics in the 1970s and of really of society and of the sort of American mentality in the 1970s. And the 70s are a period of reorientation and also in many people's views fragmentation that is being discussed much more seriously now in academic history. And there are a lot of new works that have come out in about the past 10 years that try to turn attention to the 1970s to try to account for the situation we see around us today. And just one early example of this kind of new historical turn to the 1970s is the book The Age of Fracture by Daniel Rogers, which won the Bancroft Prize in 2012. And the 70s, broadly speaking, can be understood as a time when a certain consensus, a sort of mid-century consensus that was common in both the U.S. and Britain, broke down. And one can talk about the dramatic effects of that, of the labor unrest, the winter of discontent in Great Britain that paved the way for Margaret Thatcher. But in the United States, you can see something somewhat similar, although the agreed-upon tenets of this mid-century consensus were not exactly the same. There is a sort of parallel in the United States. And this consensus had to be forged after decades of bitter strife, particularly between capital and labor. There's a long history of labor struggle in the United States, struggles over working hours in the work week, workplace safety, wages. A lot of this struggle revolved not just around money and who would enjoy the profits of American industry, but also over the question of control over personal time and space. And some of the biggest explosions of labor unrest have been in places like company towns, where workers felt sort of monitored and controlled. And there's a long series of incidents in this sort of continuing unresolved negotiation over work and over the independence and freedom of workers, such as the fight for a 40-hour work week, which came up in the 1840s, many strikes over wages and personal freedoms in places like Homestead in Pennsylvania and the Bread and Roses strike in Massachusetts, and 
fights over mining and control of the mines, such as the mine wars in West Virginia in the 1920s. And employers, big businesses, and their, their owners and their executives have used a variety of strategies, sometimes negotiation, but also a lot of violent suppression, calling in of private or state militias, uh, sometimes killing, such as in the Ludlow Massacre in Colorado. And all of this really continued in a sort of unresolved, sporadic almost internal war, really, right up until the 1930s. Up to that point, the federal government had usually remained aloof and tried to avoid involvement in these disputes, and if they did step in at all, it was usually in favor of the employers and trying to pressure workers to go back to work and keep industries running. But with the New Deal in the 1930s, there was a dramatic shift, where then the federal government enshrined the right to unionize and the right for unions to bargain collectively. They actively encouraged the formation of unions and for workers to join unions as part of this sort of national recovery effort. They sought more to mediate and prevent strikes and violence, and in particular the NLRB, or National Labor Relations Board, was created to try to avoid and settle these conflicts between labor and employers. And this then led the way into the mobilization during World War II, when the federal government sought to pull together different sectors of society that had previously been competitors or antagonistic, including different firms and also employers and labor. And business and industry, whether voluntarily or by coercion, were pulled in to this war effort all sorts of industries were refashioned and reoriented towards war production. During the war, no cars were built in the United States, which was a tremendous disruption since it was one of the biggest industries in the country. And instead, they were directed to produce war materials and also labor unions, which had been at loggerheads and often literally coming to blows with employers, they also largely agreed to cooperate in the war effort to avoid strikes or work stoppages or slowdowns and to keep production high for the duration of the war. At the same time, new demographic groups that had been either excluded or marginalized from workplaces were also brought in to the war effort, such as women. There was a massive mobilization. You know, we've all seen the images of Rosie the Riveter, and this was the first time that hundreds of thousands of women went into the industrial sector, as well as white-collar jobs, and also racial minorities, who in large numbers either joined the military or went to work in these crucial industries. And so that includes African-Americans. This was a big spur of further African-American migration northward to the northern industries. Indigenous Americans, you know, you can think of these sort of famous examples like the Navajo translators who managed secret communications for the U.S. forces, and also Asian-Americans. There was a large portion of Japanese-Americans in the internment camps who actually volunteered and enlisted in the armed forces. And a lot of this uh, mass participation in the war effort was described under the, the heading or the slogan of double victory. The idea that if you support the U.S. war effort and help to achieve victory against the Axis powers, you will then also achieve political victory in the form of civil rights at home. 
So this was the sort of guiding spirit and mentality for those war years in the early 40s. And after the war ended in 1945, in the immediate post-war period, there was a dramatic reckoning then with the issue of labor and capital. And these sort of conflicts that had been shelved or suppressed for the sake of the war effort now suddenly came to the fore and demanded resolution. So there were enormous new demands for increased wages, better benefits like health insurance that had been taken off of the agenda during the war. And there ensued intensive negotiations through the late 40s that included a series of small rolling strikes where large, now massively empowered labor unions sought to kind of pressure and pick off different firms one by one and force them to provide better compensation than had been seen before the war. And this was especially true in the auto industry, which was now massively gearing up to produce new automobiles for this tremendously grown consumer market that had been also shelved through the duration of the war. So this sort of series of rolling strikes, mainly led by the UAW, culminated in 1950 with the so-called Treaty of Detroit, a massive complex agreement between the UAW and General Motors, which locked in certain benefits like pensions provided by the employer and health insurance. And once UAW got this agreement from GM, they could then pressure the other automakers, such as Ford and Chrysler, who formed the so-called Big Three, to follow suit. And further, this new arrangement, this new kind of dispensation between capital and labor in Detroit, then sort of set the pace for other industries as well. So from 1950 until about the mid-60s, there was, you could say, a new set of political conditions and a new adjusted balance of power between labor and business. And this new consensus took shape to a great degree under Eisenhower. He was a war hero who had been offered the nomination for the presidency by both parties. So he really commanded very wide, broad respect And he presented himself as a moderate, something of a conciliator who wanted to forge and strengthen this new consensus. And under the Eisenhower administration, big business continued to have tremendous power, influence, and prestige. And major executives, presidents or CEOs of big companies like auto or communication companies or GE had huge inside influence and respect in Washington in the White House as well as in Congress. They were seen and portrayed very respectfully in the media as in some way serving the public interest, that these were big employers, they were pillars of the American economy, they had helped to pull the country through the war effort, and hence they were given great great respect and deference. And there was even a famous incident that became something of a controversy in 1953. So Eisenhower, after coming into office, appointed Charles Wilson, the president of General Motors, to be secretary of defense. And this raised some questions in the press and in Congress as to whether he could be trusted to be impartial in handling the national interest. And he reportedly told Congress that he had never thought of this as a problem. He had never seen any issue of a conflict of interest 
because, quote, for years I thought what was good for our country was good for General Motors, and vice versa. So this statement raised some eyebrows, the sort of denial that there's any distinction in terms of the interests of the country and the firm that he ran and that paid him, General Motors. And it got out and was discussed in the press, and the quotation actually came to be corrupted. And people attributed to him the words, quote, what's good for GM is good for America. And that's not quite what he said. He was trying to say something more symmetrical. But this idea sort of caught the public imagination. And even in the 1950s, was seen by some people as extreme and reflecting not only confidence but even arrogance to think that there was a perfect harmony of interests between the country as a whole and GM. But nonetheless, he was confirmed, and to some degree this idea was credible, particularly to Republicans, that basically big business serves the public interest and that public and private can work uh, in tandem And in some sense, there isn't even a distinction. They can be conflated, almost like one thing. And this was underscored a few years later in 1957 when the Eisenhower administration made secret confidential plans for so-called continuity of government, meaning how would the country be kept together and run in case of a nuclear attack that devastated the federal government. And Eisenhower drew up a secret list of six private citizens, all of whom happened to be his friends, to take over, basically run the country and the resistance in the case of nuclear war. And this list of six included the president and vice president of CBS and the presidents of Corning Glass, the title guarantee company, and the First National Bank of New York. So there was almost here, although this was not made public and may have been very controversial if it was, there was in the upper echelons of power a notion of almost interchangeability between the leadership of big business and the leadership of the country. Now, all of that being said, at the same time, there was a broad acceptance of the legitimacy of labor power, even by most Republicans, and the notion that labor unions legitimately represented the working class, the workforce, and hence also should have a permanent voice in national affairs. And some labor leaders like Walter Ruther of UAW were also highly respected and often heard and seen in the media as important authorities. And they were frequently consulted with. Union leaders were consulted with in forming policy. And even Eisenhower himself saw unions as a settled fact of life that should not be reversed or removed from their position. And he really disapproved of Republicans that he saw as extremists who wanted to kind of roll back the clock to before the 1930s in the New Deal. So Eisenhower accepted unions as a settled part of American life, but he did also in some ways try to politically weaken or undermine them, such as by blaming unions for inflation. In the 50s, there was a very high rate of union membership. So it reached a high where through most of the 1950s and early 60s, over 25% of all workers, so if you take all employed Americans in both public and private sectors, Over 25% of them were union members. Nonetheless, even in this sort of new consensus, 
there were still important unresolved issues and questions, expectations that had been raised by World War II that were not satisfied. And these included, of course, the issue of civil rights, both for African Americans and indigenous Americans, the position of women, women's role in the workforce, in politics, in media, and also the relations to communism. So communists, both in the United States and Europe, had played a large role in victory in World War II. And there was an unresolved flashpoint over whether communists should now be taken seriously as part of the national fabric or if they should be seen as dangerous enemies or collaborators. So these unresolved issues, while communism was largely taken off the table by the McCarthy movement and its sort of effort to weed communists out of important institutions, Nonetheless, new social movements addressing these different unresolved issues did begin in the 50s and then really flourish in the 60s, like, of course, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement in the 60s during the Vietnam War, which also involved these issues of whether to confront communists abroad and how to what degree to see communism as an active threat to the country the women's liberation movement or second wave feminism and others like the American Indian movement, the Chicano movement, and so on. And in these sort of new social controversies in the 60s, labor often did come down on the progressive side. And to go back and mention again Walter Ruther, who's someone I'll maybe talk about again separately, Walter Ruther, the head of the UAW in this era, was very firm that the unions should support women's rights to inclusion and equal pay, that it should support the civil rights movement. Ruther and his supporters in the UAW were major contributors to the March on Washington, which was in part a labor march. It was actually originally called the March for Jobs and Justice, something we don't often mention anymore. And Ruther and other labor leaders in his vein mainly advanced these causes and these issues in alliance with the Democratic Party. There was clearly, although Republicans accepted that labor was part of the political landscape, the labor unions still were mainly married to the Democrats. And people like Ruther had inside influence in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations in a somewhat similar way to the way these executives from places like GM were so influential inside the Eisenhower administration. So all in all, you can see a kind of symmetry here, a kind of push and pull between two sides in terms of capital and labor and in terms of the Republican and Democratic parties through this long post-war era. But nonetheless, a decline did begin in the 60s where the numerical power and the influence and prestige of labor unions started to diminish. And this would have reverberating effects all across the political landscape. So after 1960, the rate of union membership in the workforce dipped below 25%. And different policy changes and legislative changes did slowly start to undermine unions and particularly make it harder for them to recruit. 
And partly as a result of that, unions failed to transition as the economy started to deindustrialize and the main weight of employment moved away from industries like manufacturing and towards the service sector. And unions didn't really do very well keeping up with that change. There also was a wave of disillusionment with unions and union leadership with many corruption scandals, misuse of money being exposed. The power of unions as measured by density of union membership in the workforce has continued to decline right from the 60s until recent years and now sits at around 11%, so much diminished from where it was in the 50s and early 60s. And part of that decline also was because certain important political fissures opened up within the labor movement and within the sort of blue-collar middle and working classes that were the base of the labor movement. And this fissure opened up most of all because of Vietnam. And the anti-war movement was very divisive of the labor coalition. So labor major unions like the AFL-CIO had gone through a long process of cleansing out communists. And communists had been very numerous and prominent in more radical labor groups like the CIO, but those were increasingly uh, cleansed out and the new unions, as they changed makeup, they became more and more attached to the Democratic Party and particularly to the Johnson administration. And so naturally, when Johnson pursued escalation in Vietnam, it led to a real split in opinion in the labor movement, where many members of the movement, and especially leaders of the unions, felt that they had to remain loyal to Johnson and not undermine him on the foreign policy front. They had to show that they were loyal supporters of the party and of Johnson, whom they saw as an ally, and also that they were firmly anti-communist. However, the rank-and-file members of unions were very divided, and large portions of them were anti-war. So we may have a stereotype today that has developed of sort of the hard-hat union man who was racist, anti-civil rights, pro-Vietnam War, who hated hippies, etc. But that doesn't really fit the reality. They were not, they did not all fit this Archie Bunker image. And there was a lot of internal division between different unions and between many union leaders and their members over the Vietnam question. And as a result, because the labor movement was so divided and internally weakened, the anti-war movement, as it built and grew, it formed outside the fold of the unions. And the anti-war movement helped to fuel the rise of a new counterculture that was beyond the boundaries of labor and the unions. And the war helped to push a new younger generation, especially a lot of better educated, college educated young people, to basically in- engage in politics and take over the Democratic Party and seize leadership of the party away from the traditional labor-oriented core. And as they did so in the late 60s and the 70s, the unions more and more were sidelined. They were seen as old-fashioned and retrograde. 
And the new social movements like the women's movement, the environmental movement, all of these things tended to be disdainful of the unions whom they saw as behind the times or even counterproductive. And a lot of this tension was first dramatized, of course, at the 1968 Democratic Convention, but the struggle continued through the 70s and largely resulted in labor unions being formally demoted, taken out of their institutional roles in committees and the nominating process and such in the Democratic Party. And this is a transformation. I'll talk about this more later. It's been discussed a lot by the historian Thomas Frank, such as in his book, Listen Liberal. But obviously, that can be a subject for a whole other lecture. But the result was that when new criticisms of big business did arise, criticisms about racial discrimination, gender discrimination, environmental harm, harm to public health, and so forth, these coalesced in a new, new movements outside the labor unions. And most important of them all, the most influential, was a new consumer movement, which you may know was spearheaded most of all by Ralph Nader. And this movement encouraged people to see themselves as citizen consumers, people who could exercise their rights by entering into the political fray as voters and as donors, and also into the economic fray as consumers through boycotts and things like this. And these new powerful organizations that arose in the 60s and 70s were mainly consumer watchdog groups of one sort or another, not unions. So hence, by the late 60s, new arenas of debate were opening up that were outside of the union bargaining table. And they included litigation in the court system, media and public relations, and legislative lobbying. And even the unions themselves, which still, of course, existed and were still significant, even they started to reorient their emphasis more towards political lobbying rather than negotiation for pay or benefits in the workplace with employers. So the arena of the fight here has really shifted. And some of these social organizations, especially consumer and environmental groups, were able to get significant new legislation passed. So there was a raft of worker and consumer safety regulations, environmental protections that began to appear in the 60s that had, in many cases, bipartisan support. And they culminated with the Clean Air Act passed in 1970 and signed into law by Richard Nixon. And even the Republican Party under Nixon can be seen as acquiescing in this sort of new arrangement, this new consensus where the government is understood to protect the safety of citizens and consumers in largely the same sort of way that Eisenhower had accepted the power of unions to represent workers. And this momentum continued through the Nixon administration, such as with the Clean Water Act two years later in 1972. And many of the regulations that were put in place in this era were very broad and had effects across whole industries or sectors. They were not just geared at one company, the way, say, the UAW might try to extract a better contract from GM. They were industry-wide or even across all American business. And so by the 70s, government increasingly became the shared antagonist that businesses had to contend with, not unions. And this new development prompted a sense of alarm. You could even say maybe panic 
among leaders of big business who saw their interests at stake and saw these kind of new opponents arising in new arenas that they were not familiar with. And some of these leaders felt a need to somehow engage in a broader and concerted way to protect their shared interests. And in this situation, in this sort of new mood of of concern and fear, came Lewis Powell Jr. So who was Lewis Powell Jr.? Well, he was a lawyer from Virginia who had been born in 1907, and so he was already a mature professional with a career behind him by the 70s. He had been educated at Washington and Lee University in Virginia and at Harvard Law, so he had great credentials. And he worked for decades in private firms based in Virginia, mainly specializing in corporate law. In particular, he worked for a number of years representing the Tobacco Institute, which was an important institution in Virginia where the tobacco industry is strong and has been for centuries. And the Tobacco Institute had been founded in 1958 as a trade association of tobacco, cigarette, and cigar manufacturers. And it was formed in the late 50s, right at the time when the safety of tobacco was being called into question. And the Institute worked to, in large part, to cast doubt on the new scientific studies that were arising that pointed to dangers of tobacco. And the Institute modeled itself on the already existing Sugar Research Foundation. And in fact, it even took its first scientific director from the Sugar Research Foundation, sort of poached him and brought him over to the Tobacco Institute. And the Institute was also politically active. It lobbied Congress for favorable laws and policies and to try to stop new regulations. And it also addressed the public and tried to promote positive news stories about the tobacco industry in media. So that was an important thread in Powell's career through the 60s. And he also was tied or connected to the controversy over racial integration. So in the early 50s, Powell served on the Board of Education of Prince Edward County in Virginia at a time when that county was one of the defendants in the Brown versus Board of Education case. So the Supreme Court used the name of Brown and the Topeka Board of Ed as the title for the case, but it involved several counties around the South, including Prince Edward County, Virginia. And additionally, later on, he served on the school board of the city of Richmond at the time when the state of Virginia was fighting and countersuing in court to try to delay the order to integrate schools in the state. And as this was going on, Powell himself stayed quiet publicly. He never took a clear public position on whether schools should be integrated. Perhaps that's because he understood that it was a losing cause, or for whatever reason, he sort of kept his head low. But he definitely was involved behind the scenes in this time of controversy. So Lewis Powell Jr. is the person that the Chamber of Commerce, which was a sort of long-standing, venerable, just association of businesses that hadn't generally been very politically active or vocal, they commissioned Powell in 1971 to provide a set of 
talking points or ideas for discussion of possible action in defense of business interests as they saw these sort of new threats of new regulations. So he wrote this memorandum for the Chamber of Commerce, which was confidential. It was only for the people who commissioned it. And he presented it to the Chamber on August 23rd, 1971, as a so-called basis for discussion for a meeting that they were going to hold the next day on August 24th. And considering how long and involved the document is, it's hard to believe that the board of the Chamber of Commerce could have possibly read it before the meeting the next day, maybe if they were very motivated. But it seems as if Powell stepped way beyond what had been expected of him and produced something much more elaborate and visionary that that he had to kind of wrap up and turn in at the last moment. And it's reminiscent in this way of other seminal texts like, for example, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, where he had been commissioned by France just to write a report on the prison system in the United States. And instead, he wrote this massive tome exploring all aspects of American civic life and culture. So similarly, the memo is several thousand words long, and it's noteworthy for the passion and conviction with which it is written, and the pithy style, pithy and memorable style. And and a lot of the far-reaching impact of the memo is probably due to the fact that Powell is a really brilliant and powerful writer. So Powell begins the memo with a statement of the situation as he perceives it in 1971. And he says, quote, No thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack, end quote. And he goes on to explore the different forces and parties in American society that he sees as attacking the economic system. And he emphasizes that it is not just a small socialist cadre. So if one were to look back to the 1920s or 30s, you could say, well, there's just this tiny wing of socialist and communist agitators. But Powell insists that the situation is different now in 1971. And he says, quote, the sources are varied and diffused. They include, not unexpectedly, the communists, new leftists, and other revolutionaries who would destroy the entire system, both political and economic. These extremists of the left are far more numerous, better financed, and increasingly are more welcomed and encouraged by other elements of society than ever before in our history. But they remain a small minority, and are not yet the principal cause for concern. The most disquieting voices joining the chorus of criticism come from perfectly respectable elements of society, from the college campus, the pulpit, the media, the intellectual and literary journals, the arts and sciences, and from politicians. In most of these groups, the movement against the system is participated in only by minorities. Yet these often are the most articulate, the most vocal, the most prolific in their writing and speaking. Moreover, much of the media, for varying motives and varying degrees, either voluntarily accords unique publicity to these attackers, or at least allows them to exploit the media for their purposes. This is especially true of television, which now plays such a predominant role in shaping the thinking, attitudes, and emotions of our people. End quote. So he's pointing out all of these different sectors of society in their different ways are ganging up 
on the American economic system, as he calls it. So the media, especially television, the clergy, that's what he means by the pulpit, the colleges. And in his view, these groups are still minorities, so they do not have the legitimacy of public support. And yet they have this kind of power to surround and attack from all directions. And he goes on in particular to point out the irony that college campuses are hotbeds of this criticism, in his view, considering that so many of them are funded by big businesses, which hence ought to have some leverage over them. So this is his first kind of suggestion of a counter-strategy that business leaders might use. So he says, quote, One of the bewildering paradoxes of our time is the extent to which the enterprise system tolerates, if not participates in, its own destruction. The campuses from which much of the criticism emanates are supported by, one, tax funds generated largely from American business, and two, contributions from capital funds controlled or generated by American business. The boards of trustees of our universities overwhelmingly are composed of men and women who are leaders in the system. Most of the media, including the national TV systems, are owned and theoretically controlled by corporations which depend upon profits and the enterprise system to survive. End quote. So he sees a, a, what he calls a paradox here, an irony that, in his view, the economic system is fueling its own destruction. And so naturally, a reversal, of course, is simply the obvious natural course of action. Now, what is the nature of the, t- the attack in Powell's view? What is the substance of it? Well, there are many layers to it. And for one thing, Powell cites the real incidence of violence towards certain businesses, which was happening in the early 70s. For instance, there was a wave of small terrorist bombings in 1970 to 71, which most of which did not cause injuries or deaths, but did at least cause damage. And they were so frequent, there were almost five a day in this two-year period of 1970 to 71 that they were becoming almost a sort of routine of American life. And a lot of them were carried out by various sort of splinter radical groups, such as the Weather Underground, the Symbionese Liberation Army, which would later famously kidnap Patty Hearst, and various Puerto Rican separatist groups and so forth. And these attacks were, some of them were to political or military targets, such as military recruiting stations, also arms manufacturers that were doing business with the Pentagon during the Vietnam War, and also some were targeted at particular corporations like Bank of America. So Powell, for his part, quickly mentions this sort of uh, pattern of bombings and uses them to illustrate the potential danger and the extremism of the new attack, in his words, on the enterprise system. So he quickly mentions this, but then brushes it aside without really examining it, who was doing it or why, and instead shifts to the sort of political criticism of business that was going on in universities and the media and so forth. So he elides the differences between this radical underground, like the weather underground, and more mainstream, or in his words, respectable reformers. 
And in his view, he sees the latter group, these more respectable critics of business, as even more dangerous than these radical underground militia-type groups. And he says, quote, Although new leftist spokesmen are succeeding in radicalizing thousands of the young, the greater cause for concern is the hostility of respectable liberals and social reformers. It is the sum total of their views and influence which could indeed fatally weaken or destroy the system. End quote. And Powell puts the blame for this kind of new criticism or opposition to the enterprise system on academia and intellectuals. And he cites, for instance, Milton Friedman, who was a a famously conservative free market economist. He cites Milton Friedman and others to argue, quote, the intellectual community are waging ideological warfare against the enterprise system and the values of Western society, end quote. So he repeatedly says that this campaign, this attack, and he uses these, these, these terms and this language of warfare, you know, very evocative of the Vietnam War that was going on at the same time. He emphasizes that it's diffuse, it's broad, but as for the largest single individual villain, his main sort of bete noir is not an academic, it's Ralph Nader. And he says, quote, perhaps the single most effective antagonist of American business is Ralph Nader, who, thanks largely to the media, has become a legend in his own time and an idol of millions of Americans, end quote. So you can see here there's this pattern where he points to the large and threatening opposition to the American economic system. But again, rather than discussing the reasons behind it or whether it has merit, he blames it repeatedly on the media, that the media are just acting as a mouthpiece for these dangerous elements. And this criticism is not necessarily newsworthy. It's not worth discussing. And he quotes a recent article in Fortune magazine that speaks of Ralph Nader. And this is the largest single quotation that he took and put into his own memo. And he clearly sees this as encapsulating his view of the situation. So in describing Nader, this quotation from Fortune says, quote, The passion that rules him, and he is a passionate man, is aimed at smashing utterly the target of his hatred, which is corporate power. He thinks and says quite bluntly that a great many corporate executives belong in prison for defrauding the consumer with shoddy merchandise, poisoning the food supply with chemical additives, and willfully manufacturing unsafe products that will maim or kill the buyer. He emphasizes that he is not talking just about fly-by-night hucksters, but the top management of blue-chip business. End quote. So Powell clearly shares this alarm at Nader's defaming of business executives, but again, he does not discuss the merits of any of this criticism, whether there's any basis for Nader's accusations. It is just taken for granted that this is dangerous and driven by hatred, in the article's words. So ultimately, Powell gives a sort of final summation of how business is unfairly maligned in the discourse, as we might say, you know, in quotation marks today, the discourse is abusive and unfair to business. So he wraps up this description 
of the political situation by saying, quote, The foregoing references illustrate the broad shotgun attack on the system itself. There are countless examples of rifle shots which undermine confidence and confuse the public. Favorite current targets are proposals for tax incentives through changes in depreciation rates and investment credits. These are usually described in the media as tax breaks, loopholes, or tax benefits for the benefit of business. As viewed by a columnist in the Post, such tax measures would benefit only the rich, the owners of big companies. It is dismaying that many politicians make the same argument that tax measures of this kind benefit only business without benefit to the poor. The fact that this is either political demagoguery or economic illiteracy is of slight comfort. This setting of the rich against the poor, of business against the people, is the cheapest and most dangerous kind of politics. End quote. So here you could see Powell as trying to point back to something like the consensus of the 50s and early 60s, where big business was seen as going hand in hand with the national interest. And he is very alarmed and arguably doesn't understand this shift in thinking and shift in talk, where now people are looking at contending class interests between the rich and the poor or between business and the poor. So it's not surprising, of course, that Powell believes that business leaders have to mobilize and undertake a counter-offensive. And he blames businesses for their so-called apathy and for failing to fight back against those who sabotage the system. So he puts forward a broad declaration of mission where he says, quote, business must learn the lesson that political power is necessary, that such power must be assiduously cultivated, and that when necessary, it must be used aggressively and with determination, without embarrassment, and without the reluctance which has been so characteristic of American business, end quote. So if business or the business class are such uh, diffuse, broad entities, who is going to undertake this counter-offensive? Well, he points to several important actors. One, of course, the Chamber of Commerce itself, which, as I said before, was a long-standing genteel institution started in 1912 that had been fairly small in terms of its staff and budget, fairly apolitical. He advocates that the Chamber should now take up the role of a clearinghouse for American industry to lead this counterpunch and to coordinate the strategy and messaging. He also calls on business executives of various individual businesses to be vocal and to advocate not just for their firms, but also for business in general. And he points to certain important arenas of the fight where this counteroffensive has to take place, such as the college campus. He advocates for various interventions in the sphere of higher ed. He believes that businesses should comment on faculty appointments, course syllabi and curriculums, and so forth, and that they should sponsor academic institutes, scholarships, and especially speaking series and speaker programs. He points also to the public arena, and he begins with this heading, what can be done about the public, <laughs> as if the public is sort of a problem to be solved. And he advocates that business should try to move public opinion in its favor, 
They should engage in the realm of television, get speakers and programs onto the airwaves, also print publishing. They should support scholarly journals and books and pamphlets, and also paid ads. And he very bluntly says business should not be so aloof and they should not shy away from using regular paid advertising to put forth their views and to defend the system, in his words. Also, the political arena, or what he calls, quote, the neglected political arena. He advocates that the business institutions should support and oppose candidates, support and oppose bills, and that they should model themselves on the consumer and environmental organizations that had been so successful in the 1960s. Also, the court system, or what he calls, quote, the neglected opportunity in the courts. He advocates that businesses should seek to vet and promote possible judges in order to get sympathetic judges on the bench. And finally, he calls on so-called stockholder power. He argues that businesses should use their lists of thousands of stockholders and investors and that they should use the reports and newsletters that they send out to stockholders who numbered at that time about 20 million in order to galvanize them in favor of businesses' political views. And he notes that these 20 million stockholders are 20 million voters. So the big overarching point of this program that Powell puts forward is that businesses should not simply defend or promote the interests of their individual firms, but rather they should seek to change views of the system as a whole. And he calls this sort of publicity campaign an educational program. So he says, in the end, quote, the educational programs suggested above would be designed to enlighten public thinking, not so much about the businessman and his individual role as about the system which he administers and which provides the goods, services, and jobs on which our country depends, end quote. He ends the memo then with final calls to action, which may have been very rousing to his intended audience. He says, quote, strength lies in organization. And you can notice here how the, the argument and the rhetoric really echoes the labor movement, <laughs> which had been the traditional antagonist of a lot of these businesses. He says, quote, strength lies in organization, in careful long-range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort, and in the political power available only through united action and national organizations, end quote. And finally, he takes the gloves off in talking about whom he sees as, as his villains, right? And he mentions Nader again, and he says, quote, There should be no hesitation to attack the Naders, the Marcuses, and others who openly seek destruction of the system. There should not be the slightest hesitation to press vigorously in all political arenas for support of the enterprise system, nor should there be reluctance to penalize politically those who oppose it. End quote. And you may notice there he makes a reference to Herbert Marcuse, who was post-Marxist kind of deconstructionist philosopher, who I believe was at Harvard, and, you know, is not that much known today, arguably had some intellectual influence. But 
here, you know, Powell sees him as sort of the, the tip of the spear of a real threat to the whole American system. And in his calls to arms, he uses the labor movement and specifically the AFL-CIO as examples of organizations that have built up their power, their clout, and that have demanded respect and, and exercised influence. So in his view, this is a sort of counterbalancing effort trying to bring society back into proper balance where the system is safe and business is as respected as labor. And specifically in his calls to action, he advocates that the Chamber of Commerce should enlarge and restructure itself. It should provide much higher pay to executives and employ a full-time president which it had not done previously. It was previously just a sort of honorary part-time position for some, you know, respected grandee of industry. And he advocated that they should hire staffs of marketing professionals and coordinate their messaging with what Powell calls quality control. So as I said, this was a far-reaching vision, both of the situation of American society in the early 70s and of what business should do about it. And there are certain themes that you probably can pick up that are worth noticing. For one thing, the victim mentality. The fact that he sees business as under attack and as unfairly maligned in kind of the same sort of way that many of the social movements coming up in the 60s and 70s also claimed to speak for maligned, marginalized constituencies. And the fact that the arena of contention had shifted, as I described before, away from labor negotiation and instead into this public arena, it maybe in a way made it necessary for business to adopt a lot of the same kind of rhetoric and messaging of these various social movements. And he really drives this sense of victimhood home when he says, quote, business has been the favorite whipping boy of many politicians for many years. And this victimhood then in turn justifies certain tactics, right? He keeps using this rhetoric of violence and and warfare, which then naturally uh, justifies self-defense. This is how he presents this PR campaign as justified self-defense. He attributes the criticism of business and the enterprise system not to any legitimate grievances, of course, but to the power of propaganda, which then justifies counter-propaganda. So he attributes enormous power to foreign and extremist groups whom he sees as propagandizing the American public. For instance, he says, quote, it is still Marxist doctrine that the capitalist countries are controlled by big business. This doctrine, consistently a part of leftist propaganda all over the world, has a wide public following among Americans, end quote. So he really sees, in, in this way, he implicitly, he implies that propaganda by business is justifiable. It's just fighting fire with fire. And he correspondingly casts business executives as embattled underdogs who have been silenced. And most dramatically, he says, quote, As every business executive knows, few elements of American society today have as little influence in government as the American businessman, the corporation, or even the millions of corporate stockholders. 
one does not exaggerate to say that, in terms of political influence with respect to the course of legislation and government action, the American business executive is truly the forgotten man. End quote. So he says that viewing business executives as the forgotten man is not exaggeration. We today might say that does sound like exaggeration. But more importantly, it raises the question, if he is trying to redress an imbalance and bring things back into balance, what is the balance that he is trying to reach? How much influence should business executives have? And hence, what is Powell's ultimate goal? When would he be able to say the mission is accomplished? This is left unclear. And thirdly, we should notice the elision that I mentioned before, where he is brushing over differences or distinctions between different kinds of opposition. So he elides criticism of particular corporations or practices with criticism of the system as a whole. And this is very significant because he never defines what the system is. He calls it sometimes the American economic system, the free enterprise system, but he never explains what counts as part of that system. Does it just mean private property? Does it mean incorporation of for-profit companies? If so, does that include limited liability? And what about public enterprises? Uh, if, is, if there's a for-profit enterprise owned by the state, but it's not a monopoly, does that count as free enterprise or the American economic system? There's no clear boundary or definition here. And all forms of firms, industries, economic sectors all seem to be lumped together, in his view, into one system. And furthermore, he never hints at any distinction between good and bad practices within that system. Does he think that there are some actions or practices in the economic realm that are worthy of criticism or of prohibition? He just sees all of it as this singular, undifferentiated system. And this elision is especially clear in his animus, you could say, towards Ralph Nader, where he casts Nader as this ultimate enemy uh, you know, on the attack against corporate America. And this is ironic, considering that Nader himself was, in his sensibilities, very traditional, arguably even conservative. He often invokes the American Revolution, the sense of the civic power of citizenship, uh, countering corruption and malfeasance. And he refers sometimes to the Sons of Liberty as kind of forebears of his movement. And he was in no way a socialist or a communist trying to destroy private enterprise. That's certainly never been his stated goal, but rather he targets what he views as dishonesty or malfeasance in private enterprise. Nonetheless, if one lumps together a sort of civic reformist like Nader together with the Weather Underground and the Symbionese Liberation Army and so forth, there is a certain upshot of that line of argument. It implies that there's no need for reforms in the so-called system. There's no need for new rules for transparency or accountability or shielding of the public interest. Rather, as he seems to say throughout the memo, the only need is for better PR. It is all just a matter of image and perception, not of substance. 
Another upshot of his line of argument is that it forces an all or nothing binary. His view seems to be just a Manichaean binary where either you support the system or you're against it. And hence any complaints about bad effects of business practices like concerning health or the environment or poverty, this all can be seen as an attack on the system. And attacks on the system are necessarily intolerable because, in his view, the system is the same thing as freedom, in quotation marks. There's no possibility of compromise. And he says at one point, quote, the threat to the enterprise system is not merely a matter of economics. It also is a threat to individual freedom. Whatever the causes of diminishing economic freedom may be, the truth is that freedom as a concept is indivisible, end quote. So he's basically spelling it out here. You have to be either for freedom or against it. And if you're for freedom, you have to be for the economic system as a whole, undivided, undifferentiated, and you're either with us or against it. So hence, no compromise is possible, and any call for change, regulation, limitation is therefore an attack on freedom itself, and in a sense, an attack on America. So that is the memo that he presented to the Chamber of Commerce, and it does seem that it had a significant effect on that body and on the broader business class, you could say. It led to a serious reorientation of existing organizations and smaller ones that were more nimble in some ways reacted the fastest. For example, the National Association of Manufacturers, which had been headquartered in New York, moved its headquarters to Washington in the fall of 1972, so just a year after this memo. And they made a public statement about why they were doing this. They said, quote, We have been in New York since before the turn of the century because we regarded this city as the center of business and industry. But the thing that affects business most today is government. The interrelationship of business with business is no longer so important as the interrelationship of business with government. In the last several years, that has become very apparent to us. End quote. Now, more directly linked to the Powell memo, you can also see a dramatic revamping of the Chamber of Commerce, which, as Powell had recommended, took on a full-time president who was well-paid and a massive new political and marketing staff. There also, very quickly after, was the creation of new organizations, which in some ways began small but quickly grew. And probably the most important of these was the Business Roundtable, which was formed in 1972. And it began from the merger of three previously private and even secretive groups. One was the so-called March Group, which was an informal meeting of CEOs, particularly including the CEOs of GE and Alcoa, who would meet to discuss economic, industrial, and sometimes political issues. Secondly, the Construction Users Anti-Inflation Roundtable, which was basically a cartel of businesses who joined together to try to suppress the costs of construction work. And thirdly, the Labor Law Study Committee, which was a group specifically of labor relations executives who would meet and communicate in order to develop strategies for dealing with labor and keeping wages low. So all of these were sort of quasi-official, quasi-private 
maybe legally questionable groups that then merged into this overall new group, the Business Roundtable, in order to take on political and publicity functions. And they became very influential through the 1980s and 90s. So this movement towards greater political mobilization of business began, you can see, really in 1972. And then the urgency of it really escalated after the Watergate scandal and the Democratic sweep of Congress in 1974. This really uh, spurred on this movement to accelerate. Bryce Harlow, who was the Washington representative of Procter & Gamble, described the mood in the mid-70s, and he said, quote, The danger had suddenly escalated. We had to prevent business from being rolled up and put in the trash can by that Congress, end quote. So this, you could say, accelerated the implementation a lot of, of a lot of these ideas that can be traced back to the Powell Memo. And the number of corporations with paid lobbyists in Washington massively multiplied. So whereas in 1971, there were 175 firms and corporations with registered lobbyists in D.C., in 1982, just 11 years later, there were 2,500. It had become basically universal for any corporation of any size to have Washington lobbyists, and the number increased more than tenfold. The number of corporations with PACs, or political action committees, for supporting candidates also multiplied. In 1976, there were fewer than 300 of them. In 1980, just four years later, there were 1,200. It had increased more than fourfold in just four years. Now, what happened to Lewis Powell? Well, just a matter of weeks after he turned in that Powell memo to the Chamber of Commerce, President Nixon appointed him to the Supreme Court, and he became a, an associate justice of the Supreme Court from 1971 to 87. He retired in 1987 at age 80, which, you know, is quite young by today's standards. We, he was old-fashioned in that way. And he could be seen during his 16 years on the court as something of a generic conservative. He was not really hard line on social issues. For instance, he concurred with the majority opinion on Roe versus Wade, which enshrined a right to abortion. But he also was seen as very pro-business and less favorable to the claims of labor and to government's ability to regulate uh, labor relations, safety, environmental protection, and so on. And so in this way, he was, you could say, true to his roots as a corporate lawyer. He also was a factor, it seems, although it's hard to know the exact details, he was a factor in the court's shift in thinking on money and politics and on money as a form of political speech. So in 1975-6, to six, the court heard a case called Buckley versus Vallejo, which struck down most parts of a federal law that regulated spending in elections and political campaigns. And the ruling, which was issued in 76, 
eliminated most of the limits on campaign spending, or it eliminated the ultimate limits on totals of spending by a campaign, on spending of personal money by a candidate in their own campaign, and it eliminated all limits on independent political spending by people or entities that were not directly part of a candidate's campaign. However, it did allow some parts of the law to stand. It was a very complicated and nuanced decision. And it did allow continuing limits on individual donations to campaigns. So to this day, if I want to give money to someone running for office, there might be a limit of, say, $2,000 that I can give to that particular campaign. However, there are no limits on what I can spend in total over the course of my life or career. So why did the court draw this distinction? Why did it eliminate most of the limits imposed by the law, but allow these individual campaign contribution limits to stand? Well, the court argued that spending money was a necessary part of political speech. It was, it was just in the modern world, it's part of how you enter into the political arena. You have to spend money. And hence, the spending of money in politics should not be restricted. It's a First Amendment matter. It's freedom of speech. And it should not be restricted except in cases where there is a compelling government interest. So the court, then, on that basis, argues that the individual donations to campaigns are a matter of compelling government interest due to concerns over corruption. And this was in the years right after Watergate. People were concerned. They had seen you know, horror stories about the committee to reelect the president and how it had funneled money into criminal activities and so forth. So they argued that in that case, there is a compelling government interest due to concern over corruption and quid pro quo type bribery. But the other limits, such as the limit on a person's cumulative total spending on a campaign or the ability for independent bodies to spend money uh, supporting or opposing a candidate, they argued that those limits did not serve a compelling government interest, and hence they were violations of the First Amendment. So you can see here, in effect, the ruling claimed the right for the court to judge what is an important enough interest to supersede the First Amendment. And in this way, the ruling was highly activist. It put the court into a legislative role, really. And furthermore, it illuminates the, the thinking of the members of the court who issued the ruling. The court saw a legitimate interest in stopping quid pro quo corrupt bargains, but it did not see a legitimate interest in curbing the overall power of accumulations of money, whether by businesses or labor unions or rich individuals, in curbing the power of that big money to overwhelm the political process overall and to dominate debates. So that sort of threat, whether it was you know, real or imaginary or spurious, the court did not see that as a compelling problem that formed a, a type of corruption. And this raises the question then, if we go back to the premise of the court's ruling that money is necessary to political speech, then one could ask, then if that is true, then don't poverty and wealth inequality 
have the effect of silencing some people and depriving them of their role or their voice in the political process? Doesn't that in some way hobble or at least skew the political process just as much as bribery does? And it happens that this objection was raised in the one single dissent to the ruling by Byron White. Byron White obviously did not carry the day. The other justices who heard the case joined together in a majority opinion that was per curiam, meaning by the court. So in this case, it's somewhat unusual, but it can be done sometimes that somebody or a group of justices on the court formulate an opinion and then issue it jointly in their name as a group without assigning it to a specific author. And that was the case in Buckley versus Vallejo. So hence, we cannot know Powell's role exactly. He never issued an opinion under his own name. But we can see that he clearly was very interested in the case. And if one looks through the transcript of the oral arguments from 1975, his name appears 30 times in the oral transcript. So he was very involved in the oral discussion, and he was mostly critical of the government's position. So it's reasonable to suppose that he had some impact in this case, which set the precedent, the jurisprudential precedent, that money spending of money in the political process is a First Amendment matter. So these two developments in which Powell was involved in the refashioning and mobilization of business in the political arena and the establishment of money as necessary to free speech, both of these changes then fed into the flourishing of a new conservative movement, which in time really took over the Republican Party. So as I said, there was a huge rise in business activism in the 70s, and this coincided and in some ways joined forces with a new growth of grassroots conservatism. And so the new base for this new conservative movement in the 60s and 70s was largely well-educated middle and upper class people, a lot of professionals like lawyers in the suburbs and new developing parts of the country. And this new movement was largely unsatisfied with Eisenhower-style post-war republicanism and wanted a new aggressively conservative Republican Party. And we know that this kind of new constituency emerged around Barry Goldwater, for one thing, in 1964, and Nixon in 1968. But it gained sort of new allies and spokespersons then in the 70s. And this new conservatism in the 70s was more overtly religious, socially conservative, and also overtly capitalist and pro-business. So if we think of the 60s, there was a new kind of conservatism, as I mentioned, that formed especially in opposition to certain opponents, such as communism, the threat of communism, the civil rights movement and integration, but particularly busing as a strategy of carrying out integration, and also the counterculture, the new overt sexuality, drug use, the flouting of traditional authority as represented in religion, the police, the military, etc., so this kind of grassroots conservatism could take inspiration and energy from religious traditionalists, such as the evangelical movement around leaders like Billy Graham, and also among anti-government libertarians, people who had supported Goldwater. 
And over the course of the 60s, there was something of an intellectual and philosophical effort to bring these different conservative strands together and to harmonize and even synthesize a new conservative philosophy. And this was spearheaded particularly by Frank Meyer, a philosopher and activist from a Jewish background who had been a communist in his early life, but then was disgusted by the sort of conformism and censorship of the communist movement and reacted against it and became a conservative. And Meyer particularly took up the task of trying to marry the more religious traditionalist side and the more libertarian side of conservatism and synthesize them, or at least uh, you could say marry them into a working partnership. And he published a series of books in the 60s, the most important of which was In Defense of Freedom, which argued for government non-involvement in personal affairs and in the economic realm in order to allow for individuals to choose virtue and freely, voluntarily cultivate their virtue, which was defined, of course, by religion and tradition. And by 1971, this sort of Meyer-influenced new conservative movement was gaining a lot of traction. They largely lost and abandoned the fight over racial integration, which was basically settled by the mid-1970s, but that was replaced by the new issue of abortion, which conservative organizers and advocates made into a major recruiting issue in the late 70s in the wake of the Roe versus Wade ruling. And abortion had previously been seen as basically just a Catholic concern, but now it caught on more with, with Protestants, especially the evangelical movement, and it became an important force for Reagan's eventual victory in 1980. So you can see by the time Reagan becomes president, a reconstitution of the Republican Party now as a movement conservative party, not just a sort of slow change, genteel or protectionist party like it might have been in the 1920s and 30s, but as driven by a movement that tried to yoke together social conservatives with business, with the sector that could support and promote a more libertarian anti-government viewpoint. And the New Republican Party was supported by a whole burgeoning apparatus of foundations and think tanks that were created to produce and promote ideas and lines of argument, and also to funnel in and recruit new intelligentsia, people coming out of colleges into the sort of publicity industry for conservatism, also to funnel money to raise money from donors and from businesses and PACs into Republican causes. Some of these organizations had already existed for some time, but they were massively enlarged, like the American Enterprise Institute and the Rand Corporation. And also new ones were created almost every year, such as the Heritage Foundation, created in 1972, the Manhattan Institute in 1977, and the Cato Institute, also in 1977. 
And in time, certain donors sort of became sort of serial funders of this new conservative institutional network. And a famous example is the Koch family or Koch brothers who have been widely discussed. And they funded various groups beginning in the 1970s, such as the Heritage Foundation and the Manhattan Institute. And they also encouraged the creation of new ones later on, like Americans for Prosperity in 2004. And others followed suit after the Kochs, like, for example, Richard Mellon Scaife, who was the heir of mainly a banking fortune. And these new institutions and spokespersons put forward different lines of argument in defense of business and industry, which could be seen in some ways as contradictory. For one, they argued they used legal arguments that companies must serve their stockholders. They have a so-called fiduciary responsibility to maximize their profits and hence pass those profits to stockholders. And that this fiduciary responsibility was even to the exclusion of other considerations like public interest or workers or environmental interests. Now, on the other hand, they also continued to make the argument that what is good for business is good for America, that businesses provide jobs and growth, and they attempted to align corporate interests with the public interest, sort of hearkening back to that conventional wisdom of the early 50s, that what's good for GM is good for America. And this line of argument could be used against regulations and taxes. In this way, it maybe they could square the circle and argue that the state ought to act in the interest of business. But at the same time, as I said, they rejected the idea that business had a duty to the public at large. They only had a duty to their stockholders. So you could see a contradiction here that if business executives only have a fiduciary duty to stockholders, doesn't that necessitate then Uh, government involvement to protect or safeguard other interests. But that contradiction has never really been pointed out very clearly as far as I can see. So arguably by the 1990s, once this sort of conservative philosophy of social conservatism and respect for big business and industry, the party arguably had become a kind of Frankenstein's monster where the the initial aims, even the very, you could say, radical vision of Lewis Powell, was now exceeded by new ideas that had taken on a momentum of their own. And you can see more extreme new pressure groups organizing kind of outside the mainstream, like the Club for Growth in 1999, and then famously the emergence of the Tea Party, which may have begun as a so-called astroturf effort with the Koch brothers and other donors trying to sort of uh, gin up a new resurgence of anti-government conservatism, but which quickly took on a life of its own among the grassroots public and spawned its own popular movement, which then managed to get a foothold in Congress with the so-called Freedom Caucus. And this Freedom Caucus turned against the mainstream Republican establishment that had been built up from the 1970s. And they famously you know, tormented Speaker of the House John Boehner until he resigned. 
So the Republican Party by the 2000s is not a simple entity controlled from the top down by business interests or any other particular elite. It is now a sort of unfolding, maybe unstoppable movement. But all of these various groups and these different layers within the Republican Party, all of them tend to focus on the importance of the Supreme Court and to use the battle over the future of the Supreme Court as a basis to raise money and rally voters. And they draw on a lot of social issues, especially abortion and the question of Roe versus Wade. And arguably, as many have pointed out in recent years, this effort to keep votes and money flowing into the Republican Party, they built up frustrated expectations expectations that the party would deliver with real judicial reversals. But those results have not exactly come about, and that has led to crises in the Republican Party. Now, all of that being said, it's important to note, too, that there was a dramatic reorientation in the Democratic Party as well. And I won't get into the details of that. As I said, it's been discussed by Thomas Frank. Maybe I can talk about it another time. But at the same time that there was a remaking of the Republican Party into an activist conservative party, there was also a remaking of the Democratic Party into a party that was based also on largely the same demographic core as the Republicans, the educated, mostly suburban middle class, and a similar use of social issues to motivate that demographic group and draw them into the Democratic fold. And there was a concurrent distancing from organized labor. And this distancing began probably in the late 60s with a schism over the Vietnam War. And this helped to spur on, as I mentioned before, the removal of unions out of their formal roles in the party decision-making process. And instead, the cultivation of a more affluent suburban base there was structural reform in the party in the 1980s, the creation of superdelegates in the party convention aimed at thwarting popular grassroots candidates or movements and keeping suburban moderates in control of the party machinery. There was a shifting of crucial industries then in the democratic direction. So as the party leaders tried to reorient and cultivate a new base, they were able to draw in a lot of support from industries that depended on highly educated workers, such as finance, entertainment, and technology. And by 2000, the Democratic Party largely paralleled the Republican Party in terms of how it raised money and campaigned, just depending on different industries, whereas you know, the Republican Party was still more tied to oil and gas and extraction industries. The Democratic Party had different funders and constituencies. And there was a creation of similar or parallel democratic organizations at the same time, like the Economic Policy Institute created in 1986 and the Center for American Progress in 2003, which also similarly funnel money and also funnel and recruit young up-and-coming personnel into this party publicity machinery. And this, in large part, made up then for the loss of the labor base, that older base in organized labor. Okay, so if we see this restructuring and reorientation of the two parties, what impact does this have on the judiciary? A major front of the new party struggles was 
the character and direction of the courts. And significantly for conservatives, the judiciary formed the main common ground and common interest between the two wings, the libertarian and the traditionalist wings. And hence, it was a good focus for bringing in grassroots money and interest, and also big money from corporations. So a lot of the conservative, the new conservative institutional apparatus forms a pipeline for moving certain people into the judiciary. And the most important group in this respect is the Federalist Society, which was founded in 1982. And it serves to recruit and promote possible future judges, sort of creates an assembly line, you could say, from colleges and law schools into law firms and judiciary appointments. And the Federalist Society then was further spurred on by new watchdog organizations like the Judicial Crisis Network formed in 2005. But the Federalist Society remains by far the biggest and most influential. It's funded largely by corporations. Its biggest donors include Google and Chevron. And it also receives money from private family donors like the Koch brothers and Richard Mellon Scaife. And you can see how it's been very important in the rise of new a new conservative wing in the courts, such as Antonin Scalia. When he was a professor of law at U of Chicago before he was appointed to the Supreme Court, he actually organized the Federalist Society chapter there at U of Chicago. And most of the justices currently on the Supreme Court today have been in some way involved and active in the Federalist Society, such as Clarence Thomas, John Roberts, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, Samuel Alito, and Amy Coney Barrett. It's also noteworthy that all members of the Supreme Court today, whether they're considered conservatives or liberals, all of them were educated at either Harvard Law or Yale Law. And this makes a lot of sense when you consider that colleges and law schools today are the first step in the pipeline of vetting judges, the sort of machine that vets and promotes candidates for judicial positions. And this is further demonstrated by the counterexample of Harriet Myers, who was an arguably conservative lawyer appointed to the court by conservative president George W. Bush, but who failed, you know, was one of the rare judicial nominations to the court that had to be withdrawn And Harriet Myers had not gone through this vetting process. She was not known to the Federalist Society. She was not a product of this same institutional machinery. So these organizations like the Federalist Society, they don't just serve as recruiting mechanisms, but they also create connections between judges and big corporations and political donors. And hence, naturally, they sometimes get caught up in controversies over conflict of interest. And for example, not long ago, it was reported that Clarence Thomas's wife, Virginia, founded a conservative advocacy group called Liberty Central in 2009, which you can see as part of this sort of 21st century wave of more radical conservative organizations, and which was started using half a million dollars donated by a real estate developer in Dallas. And this naturally raised questions of conflict of interest if this was the spouse of 
a Supreme Court justice, but there's no process for a justice to be compelled to recuse themselves from any case. It's totally up to them. Another instance outside the Supreme Court that has slowly trickled into uh, mass media is the case against a lawyer named Stephen Donziger, who several years ago represented a group of indigenous Ecuadorians and successfully sued Chevron for compensation for dumping toxic chemicals in the land and water. And afterwards, after this ruling was made, Chevron first refused to pay the settlement and then countersued against Stephen Donziger himself. The judge in that case, named Loretta Presca, has had Stephen Donziger under house arrest for contempt of court because when the court told him to hand over his computer and phone, he first appealed that ruling, saying that that violated attorney-client privilege. It would expose his privileged communications with his clients. So he appealed, but in the meantime, the judge uh, put him under house arrest for contempt of court, and the state refused to prosecute him, dropped the case, but Preska then allowed Chevron in an extremely unusual action to pay a private law firm to take up the prosecution and continue prosecuting him. And the judge, not surprisingly, found him guilty of contempt of court, and he's now been sent to prison. And as some commentators have pointed out, this judge, Loretta Presca, is a member of the Federalist Society, which is funded largely by Chevron. So (laughs) there's an almost direct link here. Uh, But there are really no processes in place for evaluating or counteracting these possible conflicts of interest that arise through this very complicated apparatus of political institutions like the Federalist Society. So in recent years, especially since Amy Coney Barrett joined the Supreme Court, there has been a lot of talk and a lot of consternation on many people's parts about a supposed rightward shift on the court. But it's important to notice that more than a a shift right or left, there has been a shift towards a business agenda, towards the sort of policies that would favor the interests that Lewis Powell was advocating or that would favor broadly the sorts of candidates and political causes that Lewis Powell supported. There have been rulings, especially within the past 10 years, there has been an accumulation of rulings that have weakened the federal government's regulatory power, such as TransUnion versus Ramirez in 2012. There have been rulings that arguably have undermined voting rights, such as the ruling that struck down parts of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, although, of course, that is a complex case with many arguments that could be made on both sides. And there have been most significantly rulings that have undermined organized labor and their ability to raise money and recruit, such as the case of Janus versus AFS-CME in 2018. So some important things to note about these rulings, irrespective of the merits, which of course one can always uh, debate, it's important to notice certain patterns that most all of them relate in some way to the business agenda more so than the social conservative agenda connected to issues like birth control, abortion, 
gay rights, and so on. And in some cases, of course, landmark rulings by the court have been beneficial to progressive social causes like gay rights. Also, these rulings, this movement towards the business agenda, as I describe it, have come to fruition in the 2010s after decades of work and planning by a broad conservative movement in which business has played an important part. So this was not an overnight shift. It was something that has built for decades. And it has been furthered by so-called conservative judges, often also with the support and participation of liberal judges as well. It is not a purely partisan issue. And this reflects the fact that there has been a change in thinking in both parties that is then reflected in appointees of both parties. Among these rulings also there has been a further advance of the doctrine of money as speech, to put it crudely, or the the notion that spending of money in the political arena falls under freedom of speech. And the court has really been especially activist in recent years in blocking moves to regulate money in political campaigns. There's, of course, the famous Citizens United ruling from 2010, which held that the individual right to spend money uh, without limit as a form of speech, such as was established in Buckley back in 1976, that this also extended to corporations, that individuals' right to spend as political speech then carried over into their collective actions as employees of a corporation. And this then allowed for the creation also of super PACs that could receive and spend money without limit, as long as they were, in quotation marks, independent of a campaign. And the logic of Citizens United was then further extended in 2014 in the case of McCutcheon versus FEC, which struck down remaining limits on total cumulative donations from an individual donor over the course of two years. So as I said, these rulings ought to call into question our normal assumptions or normal discourse about judicial activism. In, again, in quotation marks, there has been plenty of activism by this court in favor of the business-oriented conservative agenda, as well as for the progressive social agenda. It's not just one or the other. And it is true that the general weight of opinion on the court about abortion has shifted and may eventually result in an overturning of Roe versus Wade. You know, it certainly may happen, it may happen soon. But it's important to notice that that shift in the weight of the court regarding abortion has been much slower and more cautious than the shift in terms of the business agenda, which has been more dramatic which arguably has its beginnings in the 1970s with Buckley versus Vallejo, and which has been seeing brilliant results in about the past 12 years. So finally, in sum, what can we say are the overall results of this pro-business movement that arguably was sparked by Lewis Powell and his memo 50 years ago? How would we evaluate what has come about over the past 50 years? Well, there has been this significant shift in judicial thinking and judicial rulings, as I've described. There also arguably was a long period of buoyed confidence in so-called capitalism or free enterprise 
this sort of generalized notion of how the American economy works. But that buoyed confidence in, say, the 1980s, 1990s is now clearly wearing off. And even capitalism, which people often speak of as sort of a core American value, is losing favor. And this shift in thinking, I would argue, is not just the result of certain problems or disasters like the 2008 financial crash. It's also partly the effect of the strict binary in thinking that Lewis Powell put forward, this binary that closed off possible channels for critique or reform of the so-called system. And hence, when disaffection grows about big business or Wall Street or the military-industrial complex, whatever, what have you, rather than allowing the political channels to work to institute changes, instead it leads to broad disaffection with the system as a whole. And manageable crises like climate change, for instance, lead to frustration, lack of action, and disillusionment, which then can be channeled into radical rejection of the system as a whole. So rather, when, especially when one looks at the younger generation or, gener- you know, the generations under age 40 or so today, rather than hope for reform and mobilization around reform ideas, instead there's increasing flirtation with socialism or the idea of revolution and increasing attraction towards socialism, which more millennials now say they support than capitalism. This is only slowed down by also equally very low confidence in government. So as a result, it's remarkable how young leftists today, who are increasingly numerous and say that they oppose capitalism, it's remarkable how often they can sound very much like Powell, talking in very broad brush terms about capitalism or the free enterprise system, without necessarily articulating clearly exactly what it is that they're criticizing. And you can see, you know, protest signs, of course, are maybe low-hanging fruit. But nonetheless, uh, in the recent climate conference in Glasgow, there were protests and demonstrations. And there were typical signs saying things like, quote, uproot the system and, quote, system change, not climate change. And I think that this kind of binary Manichaean thinking, that either you like the system or you hate it, and there's sort of no uh, in-between and no uh, nuance about what exactly is working and what is not, I think that this, this kind of radicalism on both sides is also a part of Powell's legacy. So thank you so much for listening. And again, if you want to hear patron-only materials, including my discussion of the possible historical or mythological roots of the legend of Robin Hood, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. Thank you.